Good morning. Happy Sunday. How are we doing today? Lots of good celebrations. Four years for the bilingual ministry. Isn't that a great one? You can give a round of applause for that. I'm so grateful for Pastor Pablo and his dear wife Pilar and great ministry leaders over there. I just came from there. I did my best to bless them in Spanish. That lasted about 10 seconds. We are continuing our series in the Reformation, looking a little bit at church history and uh, this critical event though, that occurred 500 years ago this Tuesday. It was October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed those parchment pieces of paper onto the Wittenberg Cathedral door in Germany and launched the Protestant Reformation. In honor of that, I understand that many of our children have purchased Martin Luther masks and German Bibles to take with them as they go trick-or-treating this Tuesday. That got more laughter in first service. <laughs> they have a better sense of humor than you all. Okay, Martin Luther wasn't a superhero. Our kids will be dressed up as superheroes on Tuesday. At least many of our kids will be. And hey, he wasn't a superhero. Uh, he was an ordinary man who uh, did some extraordinary things because his heart was, was given over to God and he wanted God's word to proliferate. And, and he made some real mistakes later on in life as well as he experienced great persecution later on in life and, and he overreacted at times and he made some real mistakes. He, he's not a perfect man by any means. He's a man like us. But was given over to God and God used him brilliantly to change the course, not only of Western civilization, but also of, really, the entire world. Uh, October 31st, 1517, was one of the most significant days in world history. And so we're taking a few weeks to talk about the cardinal ideas that came out of the Reformation. Last week, while well, we talked about this idea of sola scriptura, scripture alone, that we get our sense of authority not from councils or traditions or even from self, that our ultimate authority, the trump card, if you will, is the Bible, that we go to the Scriptures while well, we go to the Bible as our ultimate, our final authority for matters of life and faith and conscience. And we noted that when we get into the Bible as individuals or families or cultures or nations, that, that revelation from the Scriptures, another word for the Bible is revelation, God's revelation leads to reformation. And many of us have experienced that on a personal level. And that's what happened in Germany and then across Europe and then into the United States. The people got the revelation of the Word of God into them and it lead to personal reformation. One of the things that Martin Luther was trying to do was confront the neglect of Holy Scripture in the church of the day. Uh, many spiritual leaders of the day didn't even read a Bible. There were priests and bishops who didn't have access to the Scriptures, and they didn't really care for the Scriptures. They didn't read the Bible. They just were beholden to church tradition. And so Martin Luther sought to confront that and start a conversation. It just got me to thinking, perhaps some of us need to have this conversation ourselves with our families or just individually. You take out a journal and you say, to what extent am I seeing the Scriptures as the authority in my life? And do I regularly go to the Scriptures and say, I'm going to read them. I'm going to meditate on them. We talk about 15 minutes a day 
What if we just gave ourselves 15 minutes a day to read a single chapter of the Bible and pray through a couple of the ideas that we get out of that? That would make us different. That would change us. It really would. You do that over the course of a year. You find a, a key verse that you particularly love, and you say, you know what? I'm going to memorize that verse this quarter. And a year, you memorize four or five or six verses. Those verses can change. I always say that memorized Scripture is like a time bomb in the soul. It goes off exactly when you need it, exactly at your point of need. And we say we conform our lives to the words of God that it would be our final authority. I encountered a quote last week from the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. And he noted, a Bible that's falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. Did you catch that? A Bible that's falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. So now is a good time to ask ourselves, what is my habit of the Bible? How am I getting it into me? Last week was the question of authority. Today's question has to do with gaining eternal life. How does one gain eternal life? How does one receive entrance into heaven from God? How is one justified, made right before God? This theological word justified is a really important one that you see many places in the New Testament. Justified, defined, could be like this. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified before God, just as if I'd never sinned because He looks at me and because I've embraced Christ, He no longer sees my failures. He sees Christ in me and He looks away from my failures and He invites me into His family, gives me His Holy Spirit. Now one of the dangers of doing a short Reformation series like this is we could be tempted to paint large portions of, script, of, of history hundreds of years at a time with a very broad brushstroke and to say that they all believed the same thing. They all taught the same thing. And uh, then we would miss nuance in the process. I, for one, think that we need to take people at their word. We need to receive people as they represent themselves rather than twisting their words and making a straw man that we can just tear down. Does that make sense? We need more nuance and less tribalism in our teaching today. And this is the word of the Roman Catholic Church of the day. Many people use this broad brushstroke to say Catholics back then and Catholics today, they all believe that someone is justified by works. And they'll say Protestants all believe that someone is justified by grace. Let me tell you, I know a lot of Protestants who don't believe they're justified by grace. I know plenty of Protestants who think, I have to bring my best to God and maybe God will receive me. Maybe God will accept me. And I know plenty of Catholics who have said, I am received by grace. Now, there might be some nuances from there, but the point is we need to take people at their word. And the, what the Roman Catholic Church of the day was teaching and what Luther and other reformers eventually had umbrage with was this, that God gives his grace and then on top of God's grace, we bring our best works to the table. And God's grace plus my works brings to justification, makes us right with God. We bring faith. And then on top of faith and what God has done for us, we bring our merit. 
our best deeds that adds to faith and makes us justified. Uh, Christ gives himself and we give our internal righteousness. Christ's righteousness plus my righteousness equals justification. This was standard Roman Catholic teaching of the day, that it's, it's grace plus merit, it's faith plus works, it's Christ plus me that results in being justified. Now the beginning work, according to Catholic teaching of the day, was baptism. That God mediates His grace to us through baptism, this is the teaching of the day, and then after baptism you continue to do good deeds. The teaching of the day was no baptism, no salvation. That's what the church taught. No baptism, no salvation. The church also taught that if you sinned after baptism, you could lose your salvation. Indeed, if it was what was called a venial sin, you would go to purgatory. Purgatory was this place that perhaps you would go to for thousands of years to purge you, to cleanse you of the venial sins committed. The more serious mortal sins that were committed... If you committed one of those, you would lose your salvation altogether, and your destination would be hell. And Martin Luther said, well, I was baptized, and then I sinned, and so now I'm shaking in my boots. Anyone else been baptized and then sinned thereafter? Okay, all of us, I hope you can raise your hand if you've been baptized. You've sinned since your baptism, I can assure you. If not, we should have a counseling appointment. Okay, we all have. And so Martin Luther realized this about himself, and he was deeply troubled in his spirit by this teaching that if I'm to add good works on top of God's grace after my baptism in order to get out of purgatory and out of hell, I feel this incredible trembling in my boots that maybe I don't have a good, enough good works to offer. And he would come across a passage like this one from Romans 1.18 that he would meditate on on often. And I encourage you to open up to Romans. We'll be only in that book today. Romans 1 and Romans 3 were critical passages for the Reformation. But Martin Luther would meditate on this one. Oops, not that one. Sorry. Romans 1.18, yeah, you'll see up on the screen, kind of going back and forth between iPad and the screen here today. I might get confused. Hopefully you won't. But Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he says, wow. Okay, the wrath of God extended from heaven against my unrighteousness. And Luther had a guilty conscience. To say he had a guilty conscience would be too mild. And he wrestled with this over and over again. And he would say, my, I'm not sure if I've done enough good deeds to make up for my unrighteousness to then add to the grace of God that I could be justified. What do you do with that? How do you get around that? Well, the word was confession. So Luther and other monks in his monastery would go to confession each and every day, and they would um, admit their sins. And confession became a good work of sorts that you'd receive forgiveness from a priest as you do five Our Fathers or five Hail Marys or you give to the poor. You do something though that's good through this penance system. And perhaps through enough penance you can overcome some of the bad deeds with good deeds. 
Luther, reflecting on this part of his life in the monastery a number of years later, said this, I was indeed a pious monk and kept the rules of my order so strictly that I can say if ever a monk gained heaven through monkery, it should have been I. All my monastic brethren who knew me will testify to this. I would have martyred myself to death with fasting, praying, reading, and other good works had I remained a monk much longer. Now you ask, how much trouble can someone really get in in a monastery? Probably not much. But Luther felt like he was getting in a lot of trouble each and every day in that monastery. And so while other monks would go before their priest on a daily basis for five minutes and say, I was gluttonous last night. I took a second piece of chicken. Okay, here's your penance. Luther would wear out his confessor for over three hours every day, picking apart every thought and asking Was there a prideful thought in there somewhere? Was there a judgmental thought in there somewhere? And he would literally wear out his confessor with his ongoing repentance. What tormented Luther was this guilty conscience, and with it this thought that perhaps I had not done enough to make myself sufficiently righteous before God. And maybe I would die after having one bad thought and not confessing it. Once again, that can happen if you are raised in this. Grace plus my works, and they have to be perfect, they have to all be repented for, any bad work, it has to be all good works, equals justification. He was bathed in that. Now, what do you do with that? Well, when you're in that that culture. Well, the Roman Catholic Church of the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries developed another good work that they called indulgences. And indulgences were really the wick that launched the powder keg of the Reformation. Well, let me explain well what an indulgence was. It came out of the larger confession and penance system that one would go to the confessional and admit her sins and then gain certain prayers to say and good deeds to do to make up for those sins. And one such good deed was giving financially to someone who had need. That turned into giving to the church. And that turned into this system called indulgences in which someone could sin and then they could go to a priest and the priest would write a certificate called an indulgence on behalf of the Pope and give it to someone. And after they had sinned, that indulgence forgave them of that sin. It became a good deed that they could pay for. Okay, you pay for these indulgences. Fast forward a little bit, we get some really spendy bishops and popes. And they want bigger and badder cathedrals and art projects. And they realize this is a pretty good campaign we got going here. And we actually could fund those cathedrals and art projects by a more elaborate indulgence system. And so the indulgence system went on to say that when you put a a coin in the coffer of the indulgence offertory, you can spring your loved one from purgatory. Okay? That by giving a gift to the church for this 
marvelous art project or this cathedral project, you could spring a loved one from purgatory, and if you gave enough, you could release yourself from purgatory and from hell altogether. That can sell, can't it? That can sell. The, the, the famous jingle of this day was uh, invented by the marketer of the church, a man named John Tetzel, who said famously, as soon as the coin into the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Now, my friends, this is not found anywhere in the Bible. Okay? Indulgences are not in the Bible. Purgatory is not a teaching, though, that's found in the Bible. But can you understand why Martin Luther would see things like this and he would take some issue with the church of the day? No matter what your church background is, can you understand that? Nod your head if you understand with me. Okay, only a few honest people again. Um, it's a good thing. It's a really, really good thing. When men and women of courage realize that corruption is coming into the church or into the government structure, and they stand up, and they stand against it, not all the time, but there is a time and a place for men and women of courage to stand up and say, you know what, this is wicked, this is oppressive, and we need to stand against this, and we need to, to pursue reform together. And again, that's what Luther and his comrades well were seeking to do. We should pause well, for a moment here and note that out of the Reformation came in the Roman Catholic Church what is called the Counter-Reformation. And in the Counter-Reformation, many priests went back to the Bible. And they started reading the Bible again for themselves. And official church teaching, at least, in the church after the Council of Trent exposed the folly of indulgences as, as well. They may have continued to be practiced on a local level, but officially they were no longer practiced after the Counter-Reformation of 50 or 60 years later, such that many in the Counter-Reformation world would say, thank you to Luther for pointing these things out. Maybe they wouldn't have said thank you, but... It certainly helped their cause as well. But in that day, uh, these indulgences were a really big deal for gaining merit. So Luther, again, he's inspecting every different branch of the Scriptures, every branch of the great broad tree though, that is called the Bible. He's shaking it and trying to understand what it says and what it means. And he can't find this idea of indulgences anywhere. And he can't find this idea of purgatory anywhere. And so he writes these 95 theses that he then nails onto the Wittenberg door. And most of these theses are about repentance and faith and justification and indulgences. One such example you'll find on the screen is from theses number 36. It says, a truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt even without any indulgence letters. We would all agree with that, right? That without any indulgence letters, without any word from any pastor or priest or clergy, there is full remission of sin to anyone who trusts in Christ by faith in repentance. And what Martin Luther and other reformers find instead all over the Bible as they begin to inspect its pages is not grace plus works equals justification, not faith plus my merit equals justification, not Christ plus me equals justification. No, they find grace alone 
equals justification. And they find faith in Christ alone equals justification. Grace alone, through faith alone, through the power of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, such that they say, legalism be gone, joy overflowing for us, Christ plus nothing equals everything. Can I get an amen? Christ plus nothing equals everything for us. Now, now friends, do you you ever look at certain Christians and you you just wonder, how can you guys have so much delight? It's just incredible when I look at certain Christians and they're just so full of joy and worship and hope in the midst of difficult situations. You say, how can you have so much delight? Well, could it be because they understand this? Could it be because they realize my life is not based on the best that I can do. It's based on the best that Jesus has done for me. Could it be that they experience such delight because they realize I have been freed from the fear of guilt? I have assurance because I know that. Yes, even that sin, whatever it might be for you, as I could say, there are many for me, can be forgiven by God himself. I was explaining this to a woman I used to work with, we'll just call her Barbara, and explaining how she could be freed from her fear-based guilt for some of the past mistakes she had made, and she had really been pushed down by life. Her husband had cheated on her repeatedly and also physically abused her, and then he left her, and she felt really, really small at the end of it, and as she was understanding the gospel message that, that Jesus would come into her life that the Holy Spirit would dwell in her and that God would forgive her of all of her sins, that she would be justified before God and she could now be identified not by her sins, but she could be identified first and foremost as a saint. She could be identified first and foremost as a daughter of the king. She turned to me and she said, well, Adrian, if I'm a daughter of a king, if I'm a daughter of the king, then I suppose that makes me a princess, doesn't it? Well, yes. Yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, Barb. You are a princess before God Most High because He has given Himself to you, cleansed you from all of your sins, forgiven you, given you new hope, given you new identity. Write this down. Living for approval is drudgery. Living from Approval is delight. Living for approval, that you see some authority figure that you look up to, and you're constantly trying to reach up to them, wondering, Dad, could I have your approval? Mom, do I measure up to you? Am I good enough for you? I'm not quite sure that you love me the way I am. That's drudgery, isn't it? Knowing that that mom and dad love you deeply. Knowing that someone you look up to, a teacher, loves you deeply and forgives you when you fail. That's motivational, isn't it? It's delight. To know that God himself looks at you and he approves of you. He loves you through Christ. If you have turned to Christ and been forgiven by him, this triggers delight in us. 
But the natural result is a joy in our spirit, a peace and a hope in our spirit. It's not that we're always happy that we go around life with this false plastic smile on our face. It's not that. It's that, God, you've done all of this for me. I want to worship you. I want to pray to you. I want to open up your God-breathed words and learn from you. God, I desire to give to the things that bless your heart. I want your word to be extended in the world. I want to care for the poor. I want to care for the widow and the orphan, not because I have to, but because I get to, because you've done everything for me, and I want to respond to your unmerited favor on my behalf, not because I'm trying to earn your approval, but because I already have it. Now, friends, don't believe me in this because I'm saying it. Don't believe if, because Martin Luther says it, or John Calvin, or Jacob Arminius, or any of the reform. Don't believe because they say it. Believe this because this is what Jesus said. This is what Peter said. This is what Paul said. This is what the Apostle John said. Jesus said, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is now available to us. Eternal life begins today as we trust in him. Joy and hope and peace is ours as we trust in him. Repent and believe today and the kingdom comes into your life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have the free gift starting today of everlasting life. This was Peter's sermon again and again in the book of Acts. It always started and ended with this, repent and believe. Repent and believe and you will be saved. You will be justified. You belong to God. This is what Martin Luther eventually realized as he continued to study the the book of Romans. And somehow he missed that verse right in front of Romans 1.18. And he came to Romans 1.17. And one day he just sat on this verse and he meditated on it. He couldn't believe it. It said, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous will live by faith, not by our works, not by adding anything to what God has already done, but out of faith. And all he's doing there is quoting from the book of Habakkuk. Even in the Old Testament, saints were saved by God's grace through faith as it was revealed to them at that point. And what happened in Luther at this time was remarkable. He experienced what he described as a born-again affection for God. They didn't even use that terminology back then. But but he said, it was like I was born again, and as much as I previously hated the righteousness of God because I realized I could never measure up to it, now I deeply love the kindness of God that he saved me freely by his grace, and I couldn't earn it. And his affections were completely changed toward God. It all goes back to knowing that you are loved. No strings attached by your creator and your redeemer, Jesus Christ himself. Now Luther went on, and the next passage that he would harp on again and again in his writings over the next years comes from Romans chapter 3. And I just would ask that you would open your Bible or you look on your phone, however you do it, and you'll see a number of of key ideas, a number of key words in Romans 3 that if anyone was to ask you, how do I become a Christian? you could take them to this passage alone and show them this is it. And it's so clear. 
as you see it in the Scriptures, as we'll see right now, we're going to look at about eight verses from Romans 3, starting at 21 and going to 28, and I'll uh, underline and circle a few of them as we go, as I have in my Bible as well. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, not by my good deeds obeying the law, but apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested in our lives, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, to the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God through faith. How? Through faith. Not faith in ourselves, faith in Jesus Christ. If you trust in yourself, that won't be enough. You can't just have faith in yourself, you've got to have faith in Jesus Christ. What matters is well-placed faith. Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't know about you, when I read the word all, I think that means all. This is the bad news, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we are under the wrath of God against ungodliness. That's the bad news. But, though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a big theological word that just means atonement. You've been paid for. When Christ climbed up that old rugged cross, He paid for your sins by His blood. You've been paid for by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So God is just. He refuses to look at our sins and then wink at them. And so what he does is he justifies us through the perfection of Christ on our behalf. He deals with both holiness and love at the same time by dealing with our sins, putting them onto Christ, and then Christ who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God. He justifies us by the blood of Christ. Then what becomes of our boasting? Can we boast? Somebody say no. Can we boast? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You see that? About five, six times in those eight verses it says we're justified by faith not based on anything that we could do. And so in a moment of time when someone bows their knees to Christ and say, I desire you to be Lord over my life, I desire you to be Savior over my life, in that moment of time, that person moves from seeking to justify themselves to being justified by the judge himself. In a moment of time, We move from headed to hell to headed to heaven. These are not my words. These are the words of Holy Scripture. In a moment of time, we move from 
working for our own justification. Two, receiving justification and working out of that. In a moment of time, we move from drudgery to delight. You receive saving grace and regeneration and eternal life in the Holy Spirit at one moment of time when we believe in the finished work of Christ on our behalf, and then good works will naturally flow out of that. But friends, please hear me clearly. The order is critical. It's life or death. It's life or death. If you put your good deeds ahead of God's grace. You trust in your good deeds. I gotta tell you as your pastor, that's idolatry and you won't be saved. That's trusting in self, not trusting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Why don't we teach this more? I think it's because of this. I think it's because We fear that people will get lazy if they hear of liquid, unmerited, no strings attached grace that goes down to the lowest level. Grace is like water, my friends. It goes down into the sewer. And we fear that if we teach true grace that perhaps people will kind of get lazy. And tragically, some have. But in my experience, when you realize that you are deeply loved, when you realize that you've been extended no strings attached grace and there's nothing you can do about it, that is the most powerful motivational force in the world. To know that you are accepted and deeply loved motivates you to something different. And Luther talked about this. He said we become better employees when we understand the grace of God. So we become better ministers of Christ when we understand the grace of God. My favorite Luther quote is up here on the screen. He says this, whether you're preaching a sermon or milking a cow or changing a diaper or harvesting a field or administrating the Lord's Supper. If it is done in faith, God is pleased and Jesus smiles. Friends, you can be a cashier in the grocery store. You can be a third grade teacher. You can be nursing a baby. You can work at a local TV station. You can be an engineer. You can be a businesswoman. Whatever you do, you can do it by faith. And if you do it by faith, God is pleased and Jesus smiles. Or you can do it in your own power. And I can too. And when we do, God is not pleased. And Jesus does not smile. The beautiful thing about this is it actually erases the distinction between your work and my work. Many of us think of a pastor's work as inherently spiritual and other people's work as inherently secular. That's false. There is no distinction. The truth is whatever we do, Whatever you do can be done for for the glory and the honor of God by faith. And it can be done as a spiritual act of service in response to what God has already done in your life. Now let me go back to this opening question, then we'll come to a close here. How does one gain eternal life? Here's the answer in the simplest way that I can put it. Grace alone, through faith alone, 
is our only guarantee. Grace alone, through faith alone, from Christ alone, that is our guarantee. If you want assurance, trust in the finished work of Christ alone. And what I believe God does is he comes to every person who has ever lived and he offers this free gift of unmerited grace to us through Jesus Christ on the cross. He is not desiring that any of us would perish, but all of us would have eternal life. And we have the choice either to do that, or we have the choice to simply receive it. We come to God with open hands. All we can bring to God is our empty hands. And then to receive the cross of Christ given for us and then open it up, its implications for all of life throughout the rest of life and say, wow, you did that for me? Really? You gave that to me? Yeah, for you. Not specifically for Catholics, not specifically for Protestants, not specifically for Lutherans or Baptists or E-free people. For all of us. The only question is, do we come with open hands to receive it. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you gave your all even for me. Thank you that far before Martin Luther knocked on that Wittenberg door, you declared in the book of Revelation that you stand at the door of our souls and you knock. And if anyone opens the door and receives you by grace through faith, you come in and you eat with them. Thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to come in and dine with me. Father, some of us in this room have gotten lazy. Some of us have taken advantage of the grace of God and we've said, okay, I've been forgiven. I can kind of do what I want. And the Bible would, would correct us on that. Paul even says, shall I go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. If that's your story right now, would you, would you simply admit that to God? By raising your hand and saying to him in the silence of your heart, I don't want to take advantage of your grace. If you're taking advantage of the grace of God, treating it as something less than the pearl of great price, would you just admit that to God right now?
Lord Jesus, I thank you that your word is true, that you receive these to you and you love them. Would you forgive them for that sin? Let them know that you love them where they are. Grant them a joy and a motivation to know that out of your grace they can live for grace. They can live for you more and more this week. I wonder if there are any in this room who have trusted in their parents' faith. and Perhaps they need to be told today that God has no grandchildren. Only children who trust in Him by faith. Or perhaps there are others in this room who have trusted in their good works, trusted in what they do for their neighbors, trusted in the good things they do at their workplaces and believe that God would somehow hold a holy ledger and perhaps they would measure up on that ledger. If you've, in your heart, trusted in something less than the unmerited free gift of God's grace extended through Christ on the cross, and today you would say, Jesus, I need to give myself to you. Would you let Jesus know that right now? I don't want to embarrass anyone. No one's looking at you. Just slip your hand up and let him know that right now. Say, today I give myself to you. Today I give myself to you and I mean it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this sister up front. Thank you for these brothers up front. Thank you, God, that you're still in the business. Thank you for grabbing this brother in the middle. I see you, man. Thank you, God, you're still in the business of saving men and women who turn to their creator and say, you made me. Who turn to Christ and say, you redeemed me. And then they say, would you be my Lord and my Savior? If you raise your hand right now, perhaps you would just follow me in this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to save me by your blood. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I declare today that I desire to follow you and obey you. Thank you, God, for forgiving me through the cross of Christ. I pray all of this in your name. I love you, Jesus, and I thank you for saving me. Friends, you can know that if you prayed that prayer, God has you in his loving arms today. He'll hold you. He loves you. He will save you now and forevermore. And for all of us, God, we we simply pray to you that you would help us to live out of grace this week. Help us to live out of a realization that you've paid it all. Help us to understand how great your kindness is and that we would be amongst those who say, if Jesus gave it all for me, it just makes common sense. It seems ordinary. It would be the most natural thing for me to do, to give my all to him. We give ourselves to you now, Lord. As we sing, we say, we thank you for paying it all on the cross.